Good morning. Shall we begin? What was that? Yeah, I'm just kind of waiting for just a moment. Anyone else need notes? Next week, I'm going to try to cut in. That's assuming I get them done early enough. That's a, a big assumption. Okay, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, we once again are here to study the history of your church, and we must remember that it is your church, that we are all your servants, and that we must strive to seek after you, to honor you, and to proclaim your kingdom. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. We are your sheep, and I hope and I pray that today, by studying sheep who have gone before us, that we will learn more about what a divine, magnificent, and glorious shepherd you are. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, <clears throat> so today we are going to take a look at the ecumenical councils. Now, we've already talked about one of them and alluded or briefly mentioned a second one. So some of this we've gone over again, but I think it's important to really hammer down on a lot of this because uh, these are particularly important events. And uh, the second one we'll, we'll camp on a little more too because it, it is a, a critically important event in the history of the church. Uh, so, what are the ecumenical councils? Well, those are the, the, the councils in which the entire church, as it existed at that time, was present to decide important theological issues. So, we often refer to the Council of Jerusalem as the first ecumenical council in uh, in many circles. Does anyone know what we, where we learn about that one from? Yeah, it's in Acts 15. That, that's often considered the first council of the church where the leaders of the church as it existed at that time gathered together to decide some important issues. Uh, so, but when we talk about the ecumenical councils, now we're, we're pushing things out a few hundred years and we're talking about councils where leaders of the church from all over the entire Roman Empire, from Spain to Egypt, from Britain, you know, to Syria, are all present. So usually there's between 300 and 400 church leaders present at these councils, and usually they are, at this point, presided over by an emperor, which is good and bad, but that's neither here nor there as far as what we're talking about today. So the the occasion for these councils, though, is going to largely come from heresy or false teaching creeping into the church. And I think the word creeping is really appropriate because it starts small 
and it kind of lurks around, and eventually a few people think it's a good idea, and they convince a, convince a few other people it's a good idea, and, and it just kind of creeps under the surface through the church, and it is something that the church has always had to remain vigilant against. And the church has had varying degrees of success against that. I think that part of the story of the Middle Ages is that the guard comes down. And the, the authority is di- of Scripture is diluted. And the church allows other ideas to creep in. And it takes an event like the Reformation to right the ship. And even then... It doesn't really right the ship because we still have other traditions that disagree with, you know, the, the, what the Reformation was, was asserting. So, uh, but these councils, these ecumenical councils are, the, are early efforts of the church and largely, especially in the first four, largely successful efforts of the church to battle these growing heresies. So if you look at the timeline on the top, I have marked down, and obviously this timeline is not to scale, it's just a rough sketch, this, the first seven ecumenical councils, and really the first four of the four that matter. Uh, this, the, the latter three were just kind of rehashing some of the, the, first, the ideas of the first four or dealing with issues that are important to, to us, but don't really pertain to us in our tradition of the church. And I'll get to that at the end as to how that is, such as iconoclasm. I mean, we are not venerating relics. So that's, that's going to be an issue in the last uh, ecumenical council. And even in that, there is relevance to us, and we'll get to that at the end. But the question then rises... Why was that the last one? Why were there only seven? Because not too much longer after that, in a couple of centuries, the church is officially and permanently going to split. In the year 1054, the Eastern and Western churches will split and have never come back together again. And so that is called the Great Schism. And we'll probably talk about that next week um but even <clears throat> that that is not something that has been the the only schism in the church even in in the western church the reformation ultimately produces the same thing where you have a split a major split in the church so you have the protestant and catholic split so these ecumenical councils are before all of these official breaks in the church take place so that's, that's why the number is fixed at seven. Now, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they hold councils after 1054, and they say, well, these are ecumenical councils, and they are just as authoritative as the first seven. But obviously, they're not including all of Christendom or all the churches gathering together. So even though they make the claims on that authority, it's not there. Uh, and... and from a, a very pragmatic way, it's not there. So, <clears throat> uh, so in the notes, uh, then diving into this, 
I started, uh, I, I, I brought back in Tertullian, uh, the quote that I had included from him earlier, which was this, in various ways has the devil rivaled and resisted the truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy the truth by defending it, and he maintains that there is only one Lord, the almighty creator of the world, he, Satan, maintains that, in order that out of this doctrine of the unity of God, he might fabricate a heresy. So, these heretical movements in the church are movements that are based in some way on biblical teaching. And so that's why it is essential for the church then and now to maintain a sound knowledge, not just of the New Testament, not just of the Gospels, not just of Paul's writings, not just of the, the Pentateuch or the prophets, but the entire corpus of God's word, because all of God's word informs on all of God's word. So what we teach in this church, what we confess, is the confession that is informed by all of scripture and nothing but all of scripture. And so these teachings, these false teachings, are amplifying one aspect or in some cases even one verse in scripture at the expense of everything else because if you go through the bible you could find a verse to justify just about anything but all of scripture has to inform on all of scripture and so that's that is the the constant vigilance that the church has to maintain and when somebody hits on something that sounds really good but doesn't fit that uh, essential rubric that we must follow, it might sound good to people and they might start following it, but if it doesn't follow all of Scripture, it must be rejected. And <clears throat> the Bible, especially the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, is also uh, very strong in asserting that we maintain our vigilance against that. I, and I, on the first page there, I've included a few uh, passages <clears throat> uh, from various parts of the New Testament uh, calling us to be vigilant against false teachers. So I personally uh, like the last one. I mean, they're all important, but the last one from Jude says, For certain men have secretly slipped in among you, Men who long ago were marked out for the condemnation I am about to describe. Ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> this, is, this is what we must watch out for. So when we talk today about Arius or Eutyches or Apollinaris, these are men that we have been warned to watch out for. Just as we were warned to watch out for Joseph Smith or Rob Bell, you know, we need to watch out for people who are teaching falsehood. And what is falsehood? But something that does not conform to all of Scripture. Okay. So, <clears throat> here's where we 
are going to cover again some of what we have covered before, but it's worth talking about again. I don't think we can talk about it enough. And that is the first council of Nicaea. Now, why did the first council gather? Does anyone remember who that was in response to? What was that? No, Constantine was present, but it wasn't in response to him. I mean, he, some, he convened it, but it wasn't responding to a false teaching of his. It was Arius, exactly. So the Arian heresy, and the Arian heresy taught that Christ was not God. It is essentially a Trinitarian, an anti-Trinitarian teaching. And as we've said before, what Arius taught is exactly the same as what Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. So they, they're not the same. I mean, they didn't, Jehovah's Witnesses aren't descended from Arius, but the teaching is the same. And the teaching, the essence of the teaching is that there is God, and Christ was the first thing that God created, and then through him, all other things were then created. So there, as Arius liked to say in his songs that he composed, there once was a time when Christ was not. So he is not eternal. He is the first born of all creation. So Arius is looking at that. Well, what the heck does that mean, he says? Well, he's saying, well, Christ was literally born, not of a woman, but of a divine manifestation. At some point, the Father made him in the past. But there's a lot of scripture that refutes that. And so Arius was selectively taking what he wanted to make this argumentation. <clears throat> so the church then is, and, and when he starts teaching this, you know, like I said, he, he likes to compose songs. And so Arius composed songs that taught this particular teaching, and he liked to teach them to people who were like merchants and soldiers and people traveling around the empire. And so through these songs and then through church leaders who started to follow what Arius was teaching, the teaching spread. And pretty soon it was throughout the, e the entire eastern half of the Roman Empire, so much so that the Romans, uh, the church, the Romans, the church has to convene the first ecumenical council, the council from all of the Roman Empire, all of the Christian world, to come together to decide, is what Arius teaching what the church has always taught? And more importantly, the question is, is what Arius teaching what the apostles taught? Because it's the teaching of the apostles that is the benchmark of the church. What do we call the teaching of the apostles today? What do we call that? What? They're part of it. It's the New Testament. The whole of the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles. So in the early church, that's how they refer to it. They, it, it takes a while for the term New Testament, Old Testament to catch on. Back then, it, what we call the New Testament now, they called the teaching of the apostles. So does what Arius teach conform to the teaching of the apostles? And ultimately the council is going to say no, because they're going to spend months going through the scriptures and 
organizing things, debating things, sifting through the scriptures, looking for something to refute this or to refute that or to confirm this and to confirm that. And ultimately, they are going to agree that what Arius teaches does not conform to the teaching of the apostles, the Old Testament, and also to the New, I mean, to the New Testament, but also to the Old Testament. The Old Testament confirms the New, and both confirm that Jesus Christ is himself God. He is distinct from the Father, and yet they are one. And so the doctrine of the Trinity as a, is articulated in a conclusive fashion for the first time as a result of the Council of Nicaea. Now, it's what the church has always taught. Like I said in class earlier, when we were talking about Tertullian, Tertullian was writing around the year 200. He coins the term Trinity to, de to describe what the church has already and always been teaching. So he, he comes up with the word, but he was coming up with the word as a way to describe what had already been taught. So he was, he was innovating, not theologically, but just linguistically, to, to use language to describe what the church, church was teaching. And that's what the council is going to do here. They are going to affirm what the church has always taught, but they're going to bring new language into the debate in order to describe what, again, has always been taught. And that, that's the term... Uzia and homo Uzias, hetero Uzias and homoi Uzias. So, what area? So, what the church is going to say is is Christ and the Father are homo Uzias, which means the same essence. They are what God is, what the Father is, the Son is. So they are distinct, but one. What one is, the other is. They are both God. And, and Arius is going to say, no, they're, they're, they're different things. What the Father is, the Son is not. And then there's going to be a third, more in, insidious teaching that's going to be a result. The Arians are going to migrate. And they're going to say, no, they're not heterousias. They're not different essences. They're similar essences. But there's, is similar the same as... Same? No. So the Father and the Son, if they're similar, you still can't say what the Father is, the Son is. You could say what the Father is like, the Son is like. But that's not, I and the Father are what? The, are we similar or are we one? We're one. And those are the kind of passages and many, many others that the, father, the church fathers at the council are going to be looking to saying, no, Arius, you can't read that and say that they're similar. That's not what it means. And so, <clears throat> ultimately, they are going to repudiate Arius and he will be rejected and he will be exiled. And uh, so the council then will draft what we call the Nicene Creed. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um, but the creed as it comes out of the Council of Nicaea is a little different from the one that I have here in the notes. Excuse me. 
There's no, nothing from it is taken away, but there are points that we're going to talk about in a minute where some of the language is refined to be a little more precise. So the, the creed that we recite today isn't finished at the Council of Nicaea. And that's because they're going to have to hold a second council 60 years later, almost 60 years later, which is the second ecumenical council. So you can see on the timeline on the first page, you have the Council of Nicaea, and then you have the Council of Constantinople in 381. And at the Council of Constantinople, they are going to have to repudiate Arianism a second time. Why was it still around? Because... One of Constantine's sons was an avowed Arian. And when he took the throne of Rome, he gave imperial patronage to this heretical doctrine. So he had he, his own bishops, his own pastors installed in churches so that they would be teaching Arian doctrine. So it, it, it was through imperial patronage that, the, that Arianism is going to have a second resurgence. And when we talked about Gregory of Nazianzus, when he went to Constantinople, he was summoned there uh, to start a church. He was an avowed Nicene Christian. We're Nicene Christians. I mean, we don't use that term, but we are. That's what we are. We are affirming of the teachings of Nicaea. And so Gregory was, was a Nicene Christian. When he got to Constantinople, he found not a single church in the entire city, the capital of the empire, with a Nicene pastor. All the pastors of all the churches were Arians. So he, sa he basically had to start a home church in Constantinople from which to begin the recovery of true doctrine in that capital city, and he called it the Ark. You know, that was like the lifeboat of the church in this all-important part of the empire. And uh, But ultimately, through his and other leaders' teachings, which we've talked about in other classes, they are going to push that tide of Arianism back. And in 381, a second ecumenical council will be convened and this time Arianism will be repudiated once and for all and that is when the creed as we know it today reaches its final form and so that's on the third third page of the notes so uh, they they refined some of the language and then they added in language about the Holy Spirit as well to, tr to, to fully flesh out and affirm the Trinitarian doctrine that the church had always taught and still teaches to this day. So let me, let me read uh, the creed, and you'll note that on the side of the creed, on the side of each line of the creed, uh, in adjacent to the, te uh, to the text, I added in uh, passages from Scripture that are affirming each of those statements. <clears throat> so, uh, let me read it. And, and as I read, also note, the emphasis in the creed is going to be on Christ. I mean, the emphasis of the church 
should be on Jesus Christ. But they are making sure in no unequivocal terms that the teachings of Arius and other heretical teachings that had come before, which we'll talk about again in a minute, uh, are in any way going to fit into the language that they are putting together. They are, ma- they, are, they are constructing the language so that only one possible conclusion is possible. So, <clears throat> we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. So there's the first person of the Trinity. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified and who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, which means universal, not Roman Catholic, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And amen. So that, that statement there is, in many ways, the foundation. I mean, Scripture is the foundation, and I don't, want to date, I don't want to dilute that statement in any way. But in terms of taking Scripture and constructing one cohesive statement of what the church believes, that is, is the bedrock statement that has stood the test of time through history and if you were to go through and so in in theological studies there is a discipline called systematic theology (coughs) so you have and and these also you know throw some big words out there but there's you know there's trinitarianism there's soteriology hamartiology there's eschatology Anthropology, these are all the doctrines of the church. So soteriology is just the the, the study of the doctrine of salvation. or the Eschatology is the study of the doctrine of the last things. Amartiology is the the study of the doctrine of sin. So these are like the fancy theological terms that we do, but we break the teachings of the church down into these bodies so that we can study them cohesively. Like what is, what does the Bible say about sin from Genesis to Revelation. And so we go through the entire Bible saying, looking, what does it say about sin? And we pull all that together. And from that, we, we have a doctrine of sin. Or what, do we say, what does the Bible say about 
anthropology. And so we distinguish, we say biblical anthropology, not anthropology like they teach at Berkeley or something like that, because they are two very different things. Because does the Bible have something to say about humanity? It has quite a bit to say about humanity. And so we have a biblical doctrine of anthropology. And I say all of this to, to point out that if you go through this creed, almost every single doctrine of the church is embedded in this, either implicitly or explicitly. So it is a, it is a very profound and important document and foundational piece of the church. So when I was in school in Texas, uh, I went to a, a church that <coughs> was, uh, I don't know, has anyone here ever heard of Plymouth Brethren? Old, it, it, was, it was related to an old Plymouth Brethren church. It's an old English semi-denomination. And we recited the Nicene Creed almost every other week at the church. I mean, that was just part of the worship and the body life of that church. Was Everybody knew it because that way everybody in the church could articulate some statement that encompassed every doctrine of the church. They, they can all point to that and say, see, there it is there. See, there it is there. So this is still something that is important to us. I mean, there's nothing in this creed that our church doesn't affirm. So, any questions about that? Because now we're going to move into the next phase. No questions. Okay. <clears throat> so, with that, Arianism is done for. Except it's not, because all the German barbarian tribes that are going to invade the Western Roman Empire are converted to Arianism before all of this. And so when they overrun the Western Empire by the sword, they're going to introduce it into the church and churches that had never really had to deal with it before. This had always been something in the East. But how the church deals with it in the West is a, is a different story and not one that I'm trying to recount now. But theologically, Arianism is dead. Functionally, it's going to take a little while for it to die out. But with the doctrine of the Trinity being now unquestionably established as the true and biblical articulation of what the Bible teaches about the nature of God, other questions are going to arise. <clears throat> and specifically, that is the question of how... And in what way does the human and divine natures of Christ interact? How are they, what is Christ? What is the incarnation? That's really the question. And that, that is a question that had already been around for a long time. But the question of, is Christ God... That, that was the more burning question, but these other questions are still around. And, and we have names for them. And I, so at the bottom of the, I think it's the third page, I list three. And there's more heretical movements than these three, but this, this gives you a sample of, of the kind of things that people were coming up with. So one is docetism. And that, that is the teaching that 
The Christ that we see in the Bible that people saw was actually a ghost. It was actually a spiritual emanation that appeared to suffer and appeared to live and appeared to die, but didn't actually. So it, it was all a ghost. And that's what the Gnostics, what we talked about before, the Gnostics were, were docetic in their view of Christ. And that's the kind of thing that John is very concerned with when he is writing, especially in his letters, especially when he says something like, that we touched, that we saw, that we heard. You know, you don't have those, you, you, you don't touch, you know, Thomas doesn't touch the wounds in Christ's hands if he is just spirit, if he is not flesh. Why does it matter? Well, did a ghost or an illusion pay for our sins? No, it requires sacrifice, real sacrifice. And this does not meet that. On the flip side of the coin, other people were teaching that Christ was just a really good man and he was so righteous that God finally found the one guy that was righteous enough and adopted him as his son and made him divine. But you run into the same kind of problems there. An even later one, Apollinarianism, teaches that Christ had a human body and that Christ was divine, but that Christ's, the body of Christ was really just a host that was like a robot, in effect, that was being remote controlled by the mind of God. He was not truly human. He was just being, God's up in heaven and he's kind of moving this body around and going through the motions, but not fully human. Does that make sense? He's like a, you know, little remote control. He's like a drone. You know, he's being controlled by God up in heaven. And Obviously, those are not terms that somebody back then would have used, but that's the idea of what they were teaching. <clears throat> and, whoops, sorry, guys. Yeah. So, these are the kinds of, of issues that are now going to bubble up and rise to the surface. And it's really going to come to a head with the teachings of a man named Nestorius. And <clears throat> Nestorius is going to say, no, Jesus was human, Jesus was God, but he's going to stress those to such a degree that he is going to radically take them apart so that there is God, Jesus the God and Jesus the man, and they are not necessarily the same. <clears throat> And so, to counteract that, the Third Ecumenical Council in 431, the Council of Ephesus, is going to be convened. And Nestorius will be repudiated. And he will leave the Roman world, and he, 
he and all, many of his followers are going to settle in Persia, and they're going to spread their teachings there, and ultimately they're going to spread their teachings into India and into China. And there's actually a thriving Nestorian church in China for many centuries. It was eventually wiped out, but for many hundreds of years, there were many Nestorian Christians in China. Yes? Uh, I would not put them in the same category. I, th I think Nestorius was, was trying to conform to what the scripture said, but his emphasis ended up falling too hard on the separation rather than the unity. Uh, and, and so, in fact, a lot of theologians not just now, but through the centuries, have even argued that Nestorius got a bad rap, and he wasn't really teaching those things, and that a lot of his followers were the ones that really pressed it too hard. So, I'm not saying what he taught was right, but I think to, to liken him to somebody like Rohr, who is, you know, totally new age, I think that, that's pushed, that, that, that would be unfair to Nestorius. So... Um, okay, <clears throat> so Nestorius, uh, to counter that, another leader in the church named Eutyches is going to say, oh boy, Nestorius, you got it all wrong. There's no, that separation between, you know, the, the human Christ, or the human Jesus and the divine Christ, you've, you've pushed that too far, really... They're one, and they're so one that what he starts to do is get close to Apollinarianism again, where the divine nature of, of, of Christ eclipses the human nature. And, and so it's, and this is all, you know, this is getting out into the weeds, but it matters, and why it matters we'll get to in just a minute. And, and so you have the pendulum swinging one way, and then you have the pendulum swinging the other way. Where the pendulum needs to be is right here, you know. But the pendulum, it went here, and then it went here, and then it's going to go way over here. And that's the third group, which are called the Monophysites. And the Monophysites taught that, well, there's no human nature of Christ, and there's no divine nature of Christ. What really happens is the two mix together and create a unique third nature that has never existed before and will never exist again. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons. It matters because this is not what Scripture reveals, and we need to stay true to what the Bible in its entirety teaches. But if you start to pick things apart and look at how does this affect other doctrines, other doctrines really start to fall apart. For example, and this is kind of an important one, the entire salvific, the economy of salvation, 
the way that salvation works is dependent on two things. I mean, it's dependent on a lot of things, but in, in, in essence, we are unable to, off, to offer the sacrifice to God that's necessary. Why is that? Well, we are human. We meet that qualification, but are we able to satisfy God eternally? No. But so Christ is being fully God and fully man, the, the God-man, he is able to provide God with the, the sacrifice that is necessary because he is fully God. He is like us in all ways except sin. And yet he is also eternal. And he is able to offer that eternal sacrifice. And if you have the pendulum here or here or way over here, you're not hitting all of those notes. You need the pendulum right in the middle where it belongs, where Scripture reveals it to be in order for the economy of salvation to function as it's revealed in Scripture. And so as these teachings are spreading, uh, the church is going to have to convene again. And, uh, oh, so what the church taught and had always taught was that what we taught what we excuse me what we teach is that Christ was fully god and fully man and what do we call this 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 the incarnation it's a term we're familiar with what the hypostatic union now it's a big term that means that the divine nature and the human nature of Christ were united in one person. So he is one person with two complete natures. He has a complete human nature. He does not have a human body with a divine mind. He has a human mind. He ha- he is, I mean, he is like us, but he is also fully God. So it is a, it is a miraculous revelation. It is a miraculous thing. And it is a unique thing, but it's not a unique nature that has never existed before, existed before. It's two natures that have existed that are combined in one person uniquely, fully God and fully man. And so the council is going to be convened to deal with... Uh, with... Uh, I lost my place. To deal with uh, Eutychianism, Nestorianism, and Monophysitism. And that is the Council of Chalcedon. And that's going to meet in 451. Now this was done under the leadership of Leo the Great, who was the Bishop of Rome. He was the leader of the churches in Rome. This is also, he's called the Great because he has a huge influence. This is kind of, he's sort of, He's referred to as Pope Leo I. Um, but he is one of the first leaders of the Church of Rome, if not the first, to really assert himself in a way that other future leaders of Rome, i.e. popes, will model themselves after. I don't think you can blame Leo for that. He doesn't know what's going to come after him. What he 
sees is a power vacuum in the church and just in the world, and he's going to step in and, and fill it. And, he, and, and for the betterment of the church, I will add. Uh, he, he's the one that confronts Attila the Hun. And uh, you know, famously, we don't know what they said, but Attila the Hun was on the doorsteps of Rome, and after meeting with Leo, he's going to turn around and leave Italy. But Leo will also send a letter to the bishops in the east that is going to articulate in, in very convincing fashion the biblical doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the, the council of Chalcedon will then be convened under his auspices. Uh, even though he's not present, he sends his representatives and, and so the council meets, and ultimately, they will repudiate Nestorianism, uh, Monophysitism, Eutychianism, and a bunch of other isms that we've discussed, but once and for all settling this matter. And the, they then produce the second great creed of the church, and it's a creed that, again, we should be familiar with, because this, this creed is the bedrock along with the Nicene Creed, of, of what we still believe. These are creeds that Luther and Calvin affirmed. These are creeds that the Southern Baptist Convention affirmed. I mean, these are, these are teachings of the church that have always been teachings of the church. But they are articulations that are making it easy to communicate and understand. I didn't have time to go through and add references to the creed like I did for the Nicene Creed, but if anyone's interested, I could pull that together. Uh, but let me read the Chalcedonian Creed. <clears throat> and when it says the Holy Fathers, uh, that is referring back to the Nicene Creed because this is intended as an augmentation to it. So, <clears throat> we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. The, the, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature's being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Amen. So that is the Chalcedonian Creed. We all here are Chalcedonian Christians. 
We are Nicene Chalcedonians. That is, that is what we are. So, I mean, we don't use those terms anymore, but that's what we are. So, there's two things in here that I want to address. Uh, <clears throat> one is in the middle where it says, For us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God, according to the manhood. The word there in Greek is theotokos, and it means bearer of God. And that was a sticking point. And, you know, when people now, I mean, in my experience, when people reject or, or, or have issues with Catholicism, one of the things is the way that they treat Mary. And I have a problem with, with that, too. And so when a lot of people read this and they see Mary being given this position as the bearer of God, it, it's kind of like, what? What am I affirming? But back when this was drafted, that was an issue as well. Because what, I mean, what do we say about Mary? And, and they decided on this term, bearer of God, because if we deny that the baby that was born to her was God, we've denied the, in, the incarnation entirely. So when, when he was, even before he was born, when he was in her womb, he was still fully man and fully God. And so she does have that singular position as the woman who bore God into this world through the incarnation. And to deny that is to deny the very man, human nature of him and yet his, to deny that is to deny that the man that was born, the child that was born, was fully man and fully God. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So there's, there is this, you know, it, it's where you take it from there that becomes really problematic. I mean, how do, you, what, how do you treat Mary beyond that? But they were trying to thread that needle without, so, you know, if you say, oh, she's not, the bearer of God, or, or I mean, or some would even say, if she's not the mother of God, well, you know, then you're denying his humanity. But he's not the mother of God, the Son, but she's the mother of God when he was born into this world. So it, it's what you mean by the mother of God. And the problem is a lot of people in the Catholic Church, and not everybody, but a lot of people elevate her to a status beyond that. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So that's one thing I want to point out. The other is in the, in the next line below that, and this is almost the most important part of the creed, are the four terms inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. That, those are the terms that should chaperone our understanding of the nature of the relationship between Christ's human and divine natures. So they, they are not blended. They're not confused. They're not changing from divine to human or human to divine. They are not divided. He is not two persons. He is one person. 
and they are yet mystically and mysteriously inseparable. So he is still one person with a human nature and a divine nature. So those, those four terms were very explicitly used to exclude all other possible options. So, the, I mean, they, they put a lot of thought and work into this. So, along with the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed still stands as the bedrock doctrine of the church. Those two together, pretty much all other theology flows out of that. And flowing into them is the Word. So, you know, they're, the, they're kind of the grid. Here's Scripture, and it's being all of Scripture, the, the entire New Testament and the Old Testament, are being pulled down into these two tight statements that kind of encompass everything and, then, and are then amplified out of that into what we know today. So I would encourage everybody to be familiar with those. So in the last five minutes or so, then, I want to talk about the last three ecumenical councils. Like I said, those, those first four, especially Nicaea and Chalcedon, those first four are really the the critical ones, but that's why on the, the timeline I put on the notes, I put them in bold. The other three are, are less important. Um, so the Second Council of Constantinople was almost 100 years later and was still dealing with monophysitism because that teaching had really taken root in Egypt and Syria and Ultimately, that council will be ineffective, and it will not really achieve the ends of settling that debate. And so, an emperor, and he's actually a really, really, really important emperor, and, and in a lot of ways he was a really good emperor. Uh, his name was Heraclius. He is going to come along, and he's, but he, from the top down, he's going to try to force a, an, a new theological perspective on the church to try to find a compromise between orthodoxy and the monophysites. Here's another big word, and I'm sorry to throw it at you, but it's called monothelitism. And all that is saying is that Christ had one will. He had a fully human nature and a fully divine nature, but he had only one will. But what do you do then with not my will, but yours? Is he really fully human if his will is divine and not human? Is, it, is that perfect submission to go on the cross as a man dying for our sins if it's really just God's, the Father's will? Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's a very fine point, but you're subtracting from his humanity. And so it's, it, it, at the, the Sixth Ecumenical Council in 680, it's also going to be rejected. And so the Monophysites and Orthodoxy are still going to be butting heads. Except that issue is going to be resolved. Well, it's not going to be resolved. But the issue is going to go away because all the territories where the Monophysites were predominant is going to be taken over by Muslims. Egypt, Syria, that's all going to be conquered in the initial outburst of Islam from the Arabian Peninsula. And so as a practical matter, the Monophysite issue 
will just evaporate for the church because those people are now well beyond the reach of the church. They are behind enemy lines. And guess what? They're still behind enemy lines. And the Monophysites still exist today. And we know them as the Coptic church in Egypt. So this is something that has still not yet been resolved. And then the, the last ecumenical council, the seventh, is in 787. And this is regarding the issue of the iconoclast controversy. And honestly, this is not something I am comfortable talking about in only a minute. Because this was a huge issue that's going to rack the church. It's mostly going to be in the east, but it will also affect the west. And it's something that we differ from, ultimately, than from what the council decides. So they, the council will, will find that it is okay to have icons in the church. And it's a really complicated issue, and I'll, I'll just give you a taste of it, and maybe we can talk about it soon. I don't, I don't know, but you know, part of the argument for icons, well, some people, you know, many people that were against the icons, they, they saw two things. One, um, you know, well, yeah, usually they're paintings or something depicting things, but they. Uh, Nowadays, they are, oh, how do I want to pick my words? They are venerated, but they're like, they're, but the way that they would be described now is they become a, a focal point of somebody's prayer to focus them on God or a saint or something like that. They'll focus on that, but they're really praying to what it represents, and, and so the people that were, and, and believe me, I'm not going to do this justice in like a minute. So, I mean, this is a really complicated issue. But the people that were against icons, and, and rightly so, were recognizing two things. One, that in the, you know, even though the church theologically was saying, we are not worshiping these things. They are, you know, things that we, they are tools to help us focus and pray to God. Now, praying to saints, that's another story. I mean, that's a totally separate matter. We can get into that later in the Middle Ages. But let's just exclude that and just talk about God. I mean, let's, like, if you have an icon depicting Christ... You know, they're saying, well, it's helping me focus so that I can pray to Christ. I'm focusing on this representation of Christ and I'm praying to him. But they're see the people that are against that are seeing, A, in the Bible, what's in the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not make a graven image. Okay. So they're saying, well, there's that, and that might be important. But they're also looking at the laity in the church and recognizing that a lot of the people out in the countryside, the uneducated Masses, and keep in mind, we are descending into the dark ages when 
Their literacy is evaporating. You know, people are descending into superstition left and right, even Christian superstition. And they, they are recognizing that this veneration of icons is really, in many cases, a worship of icons. And they have a big problem with that. But then part of the response, and I'll just end with this, and I'm not advocating icons, but that's why this is why it's complicated. Part of the response to that is, if you say, yes, you know, the Ten Commandments does say, thou shalt not make a graven image of God, that was prior to the revelation of the Incarnation, in which, you know, God was not physically corporeal, but with the incarnation, with Christ, to deny that you can make a representation of that would be, in their minds, tantamount to a denial of his humanity. Like, can you not make a drawing of a man? Is that forbidden? I mean, that's the question that they're asking. And so it becomes, in a lot of ways, this resurgence of this old debate between, you know, the you know, Chalcedonians and, and uh, Nestorians and, I mean, and, and all of those old boogeymen come out of the closet again during this debate. And it's a debate that in many ways is still going on. And I don't have time to take it any further than that, so I will stop there. Maybe we can revisit it again because it is a theologically complex issue. And I think it's important to discuss it. So we know what we believe regarding those kinds of things. Why have we rejected that practice? Why have other Christian traditions accepted that practice? I mean, that's an important discussion to have, if only so we know what we believe. So, but I will end there. Any questions? Yes. Yes. Uh, so when, who here has ever heard the term uh, the Immaculate Conception? Do you assume that that refers to Jesus? No, that refers to Mary. So they believe that when she was conceived, that she was conceived without sin. So, spoiler, that's not in the Bible. But that is a one case of why authority matters. That's one case why I always say that the real difference between us and Catholics and Orthodox is not how we view Mary. I mean, we differ, obviously, but really the issue is authority because they can say that about Mary because their authority, the magisterium, says that that's what's true. You know, their authority is the Pope and the, co the College of Cardinals, which is what we call the Magisterium, and they, they have claimed the sole right to interpreting Scripture. And so they say that that's true, and so the Catholic Church says that that's true. Our authority is Scripture, and that's not in Scripture, and so we say that is not true. And that's really, Mary is really symptomatic of the difference. It's not the difference. Does that make sense? So, any other questions? Well, I am out of time, so let's close in prayer. Lord, I, I thank you for this time. I, I pray that this has brought...
clarity and, and vision of what has come before. I pray that we will understand the creeds, what their purpose was intended, and, and that we will, through them, learn proper understanding of Scripture. I thank you for those who have gone before us, but also for the time now, and I pray that we will be worthy of being claimed as part of your kingdom in the future by those who come after us. In your name we pray. Amen.